Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 238, From Space to You. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. One of NASA's primary goals as an agency is to explore the cosmos, to reveal the unknown for the benefit of humankind. And that benefit can come in a lot of different ways. But I think one of the most direct way is bringing some of the things we learned directly into products and services that we as earthbound citizens use and can sometimes impact our daily lives. This transfer of technology to the private sector is run by a program called, you guessed it, NASA's Technology Transfer Program. Longtime listeners may recognize this program from episode 135. In addition to the work of actually managing the transfer of technology, every year the Technology Transfer Office publishes a book of these technologies that have made their way into different industries. That book is called NASA Spinoff, and they recently published a brand new one for this year, 2022. On this episode, we're talking with Daniel Lockney, Technology Transfer Program Executive, about the program itself and about some of the latest and greatest technologies that were included in this most recent publication. Things like air purifiers that can make their way into our own homes or vertical farming technologies that can end up in our grocery store down the street. From space to your own home, here are some incredible technologies with Daniel Lockney. Enjoy. Dan Lockney, thanks so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Um, you have an interesting background, Dan, coming in as the uh, program executive for tech transfer, um, um, starting with uh, your, your your education was in American lit and creative writing. And I wanted to start before we get into just, you know, tech transfer and some of the cool technologies, just how that happened, um, how how you went from American lit and creative writing to to being the program executive of, of this uh, technology transfer effort at NASA. Sure. Yeah, it, it isn't. It isn't a typical NASA story, really. Um, but yeah, having a, a creative arts background uh, and then running a, a technical program and being responsible for NASA's intellectual property portfolio um, doesn't doesn't really seem to jive. Um, but I've been doing this, you know, just about twenty years. And when I when I got started, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I had an interest in storytelling and um, but I didn't have any stories to tell, so you know, I was young, and I don't have anything worth telling. Um, and I, I kind of lucked into this job at NASA as a contractor, writing stories about tech transfer, um, and I found this wealth of material, and I just fell in love with it. Um, and that goes back you know, twenty plus years. Um, and I had originally thought that that space was something that you're supposed to outgrow. Um, when you became an adult, it was kind of like Star Wars or like dinosaurs and um, or playing pirates, and that, that you know ultimately space wasn't serious <laughs> business and didn't have, have a lot of value here on Earth, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I know that sacrilege at NASA, and I, I know I know how wrong I am now, but I always admit that part. Um, right. But when I started working in tech transfer, like writing these stories, I I realized there's this wealth of content that NASA had so many great examples of um, kind of intellectual heroism um, solving these challenges uh, for space exploration and for aeronautics missions and then having all these cool practical terrestrial benefits and each one was different and I just fell in love with it. I, I stuck with it and eventually um, ended up running the thing. So I wonder that that period where you fell in love, you must have... Uh... You must have interviewed one or maybe several people that just sparked an interest that you didn't even know was there that made you want to continue it earlier in your career. Do you recall some of those stories that that really were some of the some of the seeds that were planted in you that that helped you to to grow so fond of this program? Yeah, absolutely. So one one of the things and I ended up 
you know, my, my training in tech transfer is a little bit like the karate kid training um, where I, I did these routine tasks repeatedly until I developed some mastery over it. And without realizing it, you know, through interviewing, it must have been thousands of people um, and writing hundreds of stories about different technologies and tech transfer um, and the process of commercialization that, that you know, I built enough of these stories together that I developed a, an understanding of how tech transfer worked and, and when it worked best. It ended up you know, serving me pretty well as a program executive for this program. Um, yet, originally getting to meet these folks, these NASA engineers and scientists, and hearing about um, the work that they were doing was so inspirational. And without giving a specific example, one of the things that I, I fell in love with was um, what I've, I've called it kind of like the law, the law and order format, and that with tech transfer and these spinoff stories, they, they follow this kind of typical um, routine uh, uh, process. And, and it, it's kind of like law and order in the sense that um, there's a formula to it, but it's a really good mm-hmm. one. And the characters are interesting and the stories are compelling and you could, you could watch thousands of them. And then, you know, I, I don't know how many law and order spinoffs there are at this, this point how many episodes, but I know you, you turn on television to find Law and Order right now. <laughs> it, it, it works. Right, um, yeah. And, and the same thing was true with these NASA tech transfer stories and NASA in general, that, that we get asked to do things that have never been done before, um, solve challenges, and um, uh, do really cool stuff. So what happens is that you know, scientists, engineers, programmers, um, get asked to do something and they, they plug along and they're working and they, they run run into a challenge where the typical state of the art isn't sufficient. And they research, they look around and they go, there, there is, nobody's done this one before. So what we do at, at NASA is we invent something, we solve it, we advance the state of the art. And you know, typically that takes the form of a new invention and NASA is one of the most inventive agencies in, in the, um, of all the federal agencies. And if you look at it from a per capita perspective, how small we are, we are easily the most inventive agency. And again, that goes back to doing something that we've done before. So the standard um, process is we get asked to do something, and you know, if we're taking a law and order format, you know, there's that like dum dum in law and order. Um, so you, there's the first <laughs> office that there's the crime. In this instance, it's the the mission. I'm not saying the mission's a crime. It's all the it's a metaphor, <laughs> right? It's more about just the format. Right. Okay, thanks. Um, so then <laughs> you, you end up um, having to invent something new that hadn't existed before. And, dum, dum, and let's say that's like the detective showing up on the scene. And the metaphor doesn't track 100%, but the noise is fun. And the, the repeatability of the story is, is the, 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 the key here. So then. Can't argue with that. Uh, thank you. So, so you give, give me a lot of latitude here. So then what happens is. Um, uh, we have this invention, and it gets reported to the tech transfer office because that's how NASA does things. And so it goes to one of my offices at the field centers, and we have a tech transfer office at every field center. Um, and my folks look at it, and they determine uh, technical viability, um, commercial viability, um, IP ownership, um, things like that, Ex- export control. You know, is it, is it something we don't want to tell anyone about? So that kind of thing. Um, so we look at it. We, if we determine that there is someone else who could use it, we then try to get it out to the public. So then uh, we market it. Um, there's a handful of different ways. And we'll get into that in a minute if, if it's of interest. But ultimately, we find someone to adopt this technology and turn it into a new product or service. And then I'll give you another one. Dong, dong. So, so the story continues. <laughs> um, and then at the end of it, so we have a NASA invention. We have a, a process by which it got to somebody else. And then we have a new product or service. And the, the starting point and the ending point are rarely ever predictable. Um, very few times is the end product um, uh, another spaceship, you know, or a satellite or something. It's all of these non-aerospace app. It's generally non-aerospace applications and consumer goods and um, devices that make our life better. Um, and there are... Hundreds. So when I first started writing these stories, I felt like um, I kept just discovering more and more of them. And I realized that there was a sea full of these things. 
And then NASA is still doing this. Like every time we get a new mission, this is part of it. If there's a new invention, of course there is, because we're not being asked to do routine things. You can't, we're not getting you know, told to go do something and then you know, the engineers just go to Target and buy the parts. <laughs> you know, we got to our home yeah. Like, this is literally all new all the time, advancing, you know, the state of the art. And, um, yes, yeah, so this is this unending field of, of potential. That's amazing. Um, and so let's let's go into the the stories for a bit, because because you mentioned, you know, you, you walked us through the process of, of the actual tech transfer, how how that works. You, you're mentioning writing stories, and, and so I wanted to dive into that for a second. It's um, it's part of a, a publication that that you guys put out called Spinoff, and part of the reason we're having this discussion today is because you just recently published the 2022 Spinoff. And so I wonder if you can. I mean, you've you've been working in this program for a while, so you've done a, a number of spinoffs. Just walk us through what that is and and how it's evolved. Sure. Yeah. So the spinoff it, it started off as a report to Congress because. Congress, when they, they wrote the Space Act in 1958 that created the agency, um, they, they had the foresight to, to say, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing law here, but like, don't just blast technology and money into space. Make sure that the results of your work come back down to Earth and practical and terrestrial benefits. So they wrote that into the Space Act. So, so tech transfer has been one of NASA's missions since the very beginning. Um, mm-hmm. And we've been doing this... Uh, I lost track of your question. I started answering a different one. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> well, that's that's okay. I mean, keep keep that that was good about the tech transfer process and, and why we do it. And then um, the 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 core of the question was uh, the spinoff magazine, and you said it started oh, as a report to Congress, right, right, and right. I think I think it was like the evolution of how a report to Congress became a magazine or, or this spinoff oh, publication. Right. Yeah, I started yeah. down there. I was like, why am I talking about the space? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do that sometime. Um, Whenever I give a presentation, I never leave words on the slide because um, I'll invariably not talk about what I thought I was going to talk about an hour ago whenever I put the slide together. <laughs> so anyway, um, so Congress created NASA in 1958. They said, make sure that the results of your work come back onto the earth in the form of tra- practical and terrestrial benefits. And mm-hmm. um, so we, we said, yeah, of course, that's a, it's a responsible thing to do. I, I'll note also that it's not the, the purpose of space exploration and NASA is not spinoff, is not tech transfer. It's to advance our understanding of the universe and our place in it. And there's something uh, inherently human about exploration. Um, It's something that people are gonna do anyways. Um, And and that we have been given the uh, privilege of getting to work on that project for humanity is just phenomenal. Um, And one of the cool things about tech transfer is it's a way to make sure that we're maximizing the, the resources and being good stewards, stewards of that money and, and returning as much of the benefit of this work as, as possible. So we started doing this report to Congress in the 1970s. Um, and then uh, Congress said, you know, this is actually really useful. It's helpful for me to explain to, say, uh, a firefighter in my district um, why NASA is important. If they say, yeah, this is rockets. How does this relate to me? And, and we say, you know, that we developed um, fireproof materials after the Apollo 1 fire that are now part of your turnout gear. Um, NASA worked with the um, fire service to help um, create the first two-way radios the fire departments used. You know, a previous to, to this um, partnership, um, uh, it used to be that, you know, um, firefighters would use steel scuba tanks for oxygen. And then what was typically happening is they would, you know, they'll run into a building and as soon as they're out of line of sight of the fire captain, they would take these heavy tanks off and run up the stairs because you're not running up the stairs with a steel tank on your back. And we helped them uh, develop composite tanks, originally aluminum and now composite tanks that they use. So a lot of the turnout gear that, that firefighters wear is based on NASA technology and direct tech transfer. So back to the um, report to Congress, when Congress would realize that, you know, I could, I could gather support for this work that we want to invest in if I'm able to explain to the public some of the benefits that they're actually getting from it. Um, so that eventually kind of a, a dry black and white report to Congress, NASA was asked to turn it into something a little snazzier, and we turned it into this um, full-color um, annual report called Spinoff, which we've been publishing continuously since 1976. It's since gotten uh, a lot more uh, modern. It's digital. Um, we've got a website, spinoff.nasa.gov. 
um, we've got videos, we've got um, cool um, celebrity um, uh, testimonials about how cool NASA tech transfer is. Um, and we've got uh, social media sites, of course. And I think the, the, the best product that we've created um, in the past couple of years is actually the spinoff database. Um, it's keyword searchable for every spinoff that NASA has developed in the history of our having recorded it. So it's not necessarily the full number of spinoffs ever, but it's just everything. We, we wrote down everything we could find um, for 40 plus years, and this is what we got. And it's all in this keyword searchable database. You can organize it by um, uh, subject category. Um, you can search by location. Let's see where the different companies are, and you find out that they're not all where um, NASA field centers are. Um, but yeah, it's a really cool tool, the database. You were you were part of the development of that tool, right? I mean, spinoff didn't didn't always have that level of accessibility. Um, you know, maybe folks didn't have access to to read the spinoff publication, or uh, I'm actually not sure how many people how many people do. So so what what happened to to start that evolution from uh, to, to get to that database that you're talking about? So um, to, to answer the second part of your question first, um, spinoff is. is actually one of NASA's most popular websites. It's kind of an evergreen, and, mm -hmm. and NASA's got some of the most popular websites of um, all of, all the federal government. So the spinoff is, we have a lot of eyes on it, um, which is all the more reason to make sure it's not just a print publication that gets distributed to, to a couple of libraries around the country. Um, right. yeah. But but in terms of, of developing the tools, one of the ways that um, I've been successful in tech transfer um, leading it has been the development of, of new and simple tools. Um, and I don't, I don't have any big secret for how I've been doing it. I just, I, it's, we, we think about what experience we would like to have when we go to a website, look for information, fill out a form. Um, so even our patent licensing, we, we made it much simpler. Um, we, we've kind of taken the, uh, the TurboTax approach to a lot of the forms that we have to fill out. Uh, that the people that we ask people to fill out if they want to commercialize their technology. It used to be you give this dense government form written by lawyers. Uh, it was kind of complicated and hard to figure out. Instead, we ask you some basic questions like, which technology are you interested in? What would you like to do with it? Um, we're the only federal agency currently with its entire intellectual property portfolio searchable online. Um, so it seems strange to brag about creating a website. <laughs> but... Um, but still, we're number one. We're the only, we're the yeah. only one to figure out how to do it. And, and it was a lot of work. Um, every patent, every piece of software we have available for um, public consumption um, is accessible through technology.nasa.gov, uh, keyword searchable, um, searchable by category. Um, and then we have um, uh, benefits and applications that, that we think um, uh, the technology has, as well as plain language descriptions of it, links to more information. In some cases, we have videos of the inventor explaining it. Uh, so just that kind of um, uh, uh, thinking like consumers as opposed to thinking like government um, has really advanced the program. So back to the, the database, we realized we get asked all the time, uh, so what is what NASA technologies have benefited agriculture? What NASA technologies have benefited um, uh, aging studies and research. Uh, what NASA technologies have benefited? Um, what, what are the consumer goods that you can find every day? Or what are what are the um, climate technologies that, that are now um, helping us clean up the planet? And having a quick way to search 40 years of that was, you know, um, uh, an important tool to develop. So. How did that work out for you? I mean, you're, like you said, you're one of the um, one of the only federal agencies actually doing this. I'm sure you this this database has provided enough accessibility to justify the effort that went into it. Meaning that you're you're, you're transferring a lot more technology. Have you seen Have you seen more technology transfer since since you've uh, um, built this database? So it yes. We the database is part of a, a, a suite of tools, um, and, and I don't know if I'm oh, yeah. at the database entirely, but this this kind of uh, modernization of the program, I, I'm, I'm, I'm I've inherited a 60 year old program, it's been around since 1958, and one of the 
I still get excited when I find that we're doing things like paper letters um, very, very rarely, but every now and then we're like, oh, that's a paper. We can automate that. You know, we can, we can, we can make that, we can make that electronic. There's so many, so many simple um, uh, and fun ways to you know, take this program apart and clean it and put it back together more efficiently. Um, we're having a lot of fun with. So, so the database is one of those tools for the, you know, it's handy to, if you could search this information, it can make it publicly available. Wow. Um, so in, in the years, the past couple of years that we've been making these um, uh, modernizations, we've increased our patent licensing um, uh, but tenfold. And I had to look this one up. You know, there's, there's double, wow. triple, quadruple. Tenfold is decoupled. So it sounds like decoupled as in to move something away from something else, but right. decoupled is ten times. Um, so that, that was a, that was a fun word wow. to get to, have, to get to look up, um, and then we we quintupled five times our, our the, the amount of software code that we get up to the public. So there has never been um, more technology transferred at NASA than just last year. I'll tell you, the previous year was the same, and the year before that was the same. So we've we've had this upward trajectory, and I, I honestly I thought in 2021. Um, that we had, um, actually 2020, that, that we had hit a number that un, unsurpassable, we'll never beat this again. And the, the reason was uh, JPL invented a ventilator um, right in the middle of the COVID mm. pandemic. So there's that, um, that Thursday night when you saw on the news, Tom Hanks got sick and they canceled the mm. NBA season. Um, mm. And we were all like, yeah, I'm, I, guess, I guess we'll all go home for a couple of days. <laughs> In a week or so, when this is over. Um, so while a lot of us, you know, sheltered in place and we're like scrubbing, scrubbing our grapes with bleach, uh, there are a handful of um, inventors out of JPL who said respiratory pandemic. We're going to run out of ventilators. Um, so they invented a. I'm calling it simple. It's a comparatively simple compared to you know typical medical ventilators. They created a simple ventilator that had fewer than 100 parts. And key to their design was that none of those parts were required for the um, uh, supply chain to build other ventilators. So they made this new device, simple to manufacture, didn't um, affect the supply chain, and it worked. And they had it FDA cleared. And then we had uh, dozens, close to 40 licenses on it um, for companies all around the country, companies all around the world. Um, and the reason we did the licensing and patenting route is we wanted some sort of um, way to, to suggest that, yes, these companies have the real NASA technology and they have the capability to make it. We've shown them how to do it, and they have, they have the drawings and the plans versus uh, you wouldn't want a situation where you know, everyone and their brother all of a sudden started saying, I got the NASA ventilator. No, I've got it. <laughs> you know, so we wanted to have, have some sort of traceability so that we could vouch for companies that, that yes, we had taught them how to do it and looked at their um, prototypes and said, yeah, that's, that's the right design. Um, so the ventilator was used all around the world. Um, some of them are manufactured in the U.S., uh, but we're seeing them. Um, uh, they were particularly useful in Brazil and India, where there's large populations and um, our folks got sick at once, and they didn't have access to a lot of ventilators. Amazing. There's got to be so many examples of of that. Of um, because I think what's interesting about technology transfer is just this example, this this ventilator example that that you mentioned is is a is a NASA technology is it's NASA people going up and, and thinking up really cool ideas and putting them and you know giving them out to the world um, there's got to be technologies from NASA that are incorporated into our everyday lives that have wide sweeping applications and and um, th there's there's a couple that we can go over there's I think um, escalators or are, are, are one of them uh, phone cameras there's there's a lot of stuff that is an is a NASA technology that is just a wide sweeping impact and, and folks may not even realize it and, and you've probably seen your fair share of some of these technologies. So yeah uh, the the conversation usually starts with me saying uh, Tang, Teflon and Velcro are not NASA inventions. 
So that's what the public uh-huh. says. You know, with Kang, John Glenn tasted it in his first orbit of the Earth, and he said, oh, that's delicious. And, yeah, man, it's sugar. It's orange sugar. Uh, it is delicious, <laughs> right? Um, Teflon was DuPont, and uh, Velcro ended up being uh, an invention for uh, a Swiss inventor, uh, taking a walk in the woods and some burrs stuck to his pants and got to looking at it and said, hey, that, maybe there's a practical application. Those are all inventions that were practical and useful in space, um, but not NASA inventions. So we get credit for those. It's a tough mm-hmm. problem to have, right, that people think that you did things that you didn't, good things. Right. right? Um, but the, there's so many heavy hitters that a lot of folks don't necessarily realize. Like you mentioned the cell phone camera. That was the actual camera that is in your phone right now um, was developed by a, uh, an inventor named Eric Fossum out of the Jet Propulsion Lab, Caltech. And um, he developed a camera on a chip, the CMOS sensor. And it's a lightweight camera that doesn't use a lot of power, takes a high-resolution image, and is lightweight um, for uh, the thinking was you put it on a, a satellite. All those characteristics are, are valuable and important in that instance. Uh, so we developed this, this miniature camera, and we didn't know who else could use it. We had no idea. And we thought we thought spies, right, or like um, uh, private investigators. We had all these, you know, cloak and dagger ideas of, of people sneaking around with these, like, miniature cameras and a pen. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a big consumer market, right? And uh, uh, nobody's interested. And so Nokia approached NASA. Um, this is years ago, but but we still have active patents on it. Still are uh, to this day. It's our camera, and and yep, all the big companies are paying royalties on it. Um, so Nokia uh, access uh, contacted NASA and asked if they could have this camera, and we said, yeah, what are you going to use it for? They want to put it in a cell phone. And we thought that was the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> Who's ever going to want a camera in your phone? All right, I every mean, phones are talking. Everybody knows that. So. Yeah, they were they were right. We were wrong. Um, uh, you mentioned the the escalators. This one I think is just fascinating. But uh, as part of a um, energy saving, but again, you can't you know run a, an extension cord up into space. So you just <laughs> plug things in. You need to conserve as much energy as possible. Uh, we developed in, uh, this device at a Marshall Space Flight Center. We call it the NOLA device. It's named after a guy named Frank NOLA. Um, and it's a, uh, a piece that you put on an electric motor that adjusts the load on, um, the amount of energy used by that motor according to the load that's placed on it. So you'd have an escalator, for example, and the first application outside of NASA was in conveyor belts, but quickly realized that there's a lot of, a lot of other, uh, uses for this. So, um, escalators, elevators, and moving sidewalks, for example. So how it works is if you'd have an escalator and no one was on it, it wouldn't run at full speed. But if one person got on it, it would ramp up to lift one person. Three people, three people, you get. Then they get off and then it slows back down and uses less energy. So this device is in every escalator, elevator, and moving sidewalk that's been built since the 1980s. Uh, we know this is true because there's only four companies that make all of these devices. There's only four manufacturers of elevators, escalators, and moving sidewalks, um, and they all use this device. So when you start picturing every escalator, just you know, picture the airport, all those moving sidewalks. You know, and I say the airport, I'm picturing mine, you're picturing yours. <laughs> They're in both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so right. everywhere you see an electric motor, um, they have this device on it now. And just picturing the energy savings is just phenomenal. And then when you're at the airport looking out the window, you see that airplane. Um, it's got that blended upturned wing. We call that a winglet. You've seen that before. You know, if you've ever made a paper airplane, which I'm sure you have. Yeah. And the, and the, the wings are kind of fold. You fold up the wings on the end and it, it just flies a little better and looks a little cooler. Um, that's a real thing. <laughs> so that NASA essentially did that with metal. Um, and we tested it and bending the wings up a little bit allows for um, significant fuel saving. And um, so Boeing licenses back from us, you know, 20 years ago, I think the patent is, I think it's expired by now. Um, and they've estimated, you know, tens of billions of gallons of fuel saved just with this adaptation. Um, 
Yeah, and back on airplanes, you know, people forget that the first A in NASA is aeronautics. And, you know, if you've ever been on an airplane, um, you've benefited from NASA research. There's, we're in every aspect of, of uh, modern uh, airplanes. Unbelievable. That, I mean, there's, I, I always love hearing these stories because um, it just fascinates me. You know, like you mentioned at the top, um, you know, we're, we're exploring space and, and we're doing all these cool things. And, and we talk about benefits for humanity um, quite a bit, especially uh, uh, I work a lot with the International Space Station program. And there's there's a lot of research in particular technology, too, uh, and how that benefits Earth. This is just this is just it's just so cool to hear about some of these technologies that have such such broad sweeping effects. Dan, I want to go into the 2022 catalog and some of these new technologies that I think I think fall into that suit of having broader or potentially broader um, uh, impacts on on our, our lives. And this is just in the publication of 2022. There's no format to this conversation, Dan. So if you think of some cool technology that you want to throw out, I am always happy to hear them. Um, but on the subject of the ventilators, because because uh, you mentioned that technology uh, and how that helped it with um, the coronavirus, I, I saw another one in this catalog that was also uh, related to the coronavirus, um, and it was air purifiers. Um, very very good air purifier that is able to scrub bacteria virus from from the air. And I saw that. I thought that was a that was a pretty cool technology to start with for 2022. Yeah, people people took uh, the air quality pretty seriously all of a sudden. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> we're very thankful to have uh, good air purifiers. So yeah, right. um, space station research. Uh, this the air purifiers that that spun out of NASA research originally came out of plant growth experiments, um, and they were used uh, originally to clean ethylene from air uh, in plant growth chambers. And ethylene is the gas that that plants put off that. Um, uh, hasten their um, demise. <laughs> so, so, for example, um, if you have uh, hard peaches that you bring home from the market and you put them in a paper bag, you trap ethylene in that bag and your peaches will soften up a lot faster than they would just sitting there. Um, and yeah. bananas, for example, off a lot of ethylene. So if you put your bananas near your other fruits, the other fruits will ripen more quickly. Just, mm-hmm. um so in plant growth chambers, where we don't want to have, um, well, we, we, the chambers, we have that risk of ethylene building up. We want to try to clean that out. We had to develop these air scrubbers. Um, and the same technology that we use for them uh, is now in the public domain. And there's a handful of different companies that are making these air purifiers based on um, uh, this technology. And I'm, I've got one in the room I'm sitting in right now that, I'm always grateful for, and so there's, there's, there's so there's consumer small home ones, um, but then some of them are, are big devices. And for example, one of the companies um, uh, that makes this thing called the Aeroside air purifier, they had a uh, last year signed an agreement with the Philadelphia school district to put these devices in every um, school building in the in the city. Um, super cool. I. I again, you know, then Omicron changed everything. So I'm not sure. No, no, nobody's saying, and definitely NASA's not saying that you know, these things are going to prevent uh, um, uh, you from getting the coronavirus. However, sure. the thought of having clean air in a classroom is is pretty cool. Yeah, that seems to be a pretty common theme. I'm 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 thinking about this, Dan, based on some of the technologies you've pointed out. The air purifiers were were one of them, and then the cameras uh, that that goes into cell phones was was another one. The theme seems to be that NASA encounters some some challenge that they, they need to go solve. And so for the case of the camera, for the case of the air purifier, there was like one small aspect. For the camera, it was like a, they needed to make the device smaller to put it on a spacecraft because it needed to reduce weight, and so they did it. And uh, same with air purifiers. They needed to do something very specific to a, to a plant growth experiment but the idea here is it sounds like you guys in the tech transfer office are, are taking some of these technologies that are that are invented for very specific space purposes. And then you have like it, it's just a it's fascinating to me the creative jump that goes from a space technology to the way that it is applied 
on Earth, and and they're they're applied so broadly. Like the the camera, for example, I'm looking at my phone right now with a tiny camera in it. Um, it's just it it's it's just fascinating to me that that started with an idea that was meant for such a very specific purpose. Yeah, man, it, it's as good as Law and Order, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so many dun dun. We don't on, right? When you mentioned the space station, uh, my mind went to to one of my favorites. That, um, and just just because it's simple, and it's kind of fun to think about. Um, you know, exercising on the space station um, mm-hmm. is a treadmill, and if you're going to try to run on the treadmill in microgravity, you're going to float right off. Um, so, so typically, what they've done in the past was they would use bungees and kind of just strap it down. Um, it's not the most comfortable and probably not the most precise either. So we developed this, this ladder system. I picture like one of those like, uh, like swimmy things that a kid would sit in in the pool, like a donut. Um, so we developed oh, yeah. one of those, right? You, you picture it. It doesn't have a swan yeah, yeah. on the front of it or anything, but it's, 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 it's round. It's, it's, uh, the one I'm, the one I'm picturing has a swan. Uh, me too, but we should. <laughs> um, so in this instance, it's this um, like a kind of inflatable waist, um, and you dial in the air pressure according to your weight, and it puts just the right amount of pressure on you to push you down into the treadmill to replica- replicate gravity. So pretty cool. Mm. Uh, how it's used on Earth is, and this is just the fun kind of simplic- sim- uh, um, simplicity of this story, it's how it's used on Earth. Uh, we flip that upside down, and instead of pushing people down on the treadmill, we lift them off of it. Um, and where that becomes useful is um, in uh, injury recovery. So let's say you got a well, an injury, and but you still need to get some exercise and um, work on your mobility. You you can offload some of the weight that you would normally be pushing down just of your own weight um, as you're doing this exercise, so as to continue to exercise without you know, putting so much stress on your on your injury. Um, so physical therapists are using this thing. It's great for bariatric patients. It's great for um, uh, sports injuries, recovery in general. Um, so this thing started to pop up in uh, physical therapist's office here and there. And then um, sports teams caught on. It can also be used for speed training that – if you could kind of, kind of like um, a picture like like the cartoons where um, uh, you start running, but your feet aren't touching the ground yet. But then when you t- hit the ground, you take off. Um, yeah. The, so for speed training, one of the techniques was to try to train your legs to go faster than they're used to. Um, and so typically what you do is you run down a hill because you can run faster because there's, there's, you're just running down a hill. Um, but then you got to get back up to the top of it. That's no fun. So for this type of, you know, kind of um, getting your legs to move faster than they typically would or could, you can use this device to lift the athlete up a little bit, take a little bit of the weight off, and train their legs to, to, to register that faster movement, um, and then ultimately to, to faster running. So NFL teams adopted this thing, and other sports teams adopted this thing, and the next thing you know, um, enough people are buying it that the price goes down, but now you're seeing it in physical therapist offices all around the country, um, and it's now ubiquitous. It's called the Altered G treadmill, um, and there's there's one within 50 miles of you if you're listening to this podcast. Super cool. Very. Oh, that's so cool. That it's that yeah, it, it's that scaling up, right? The idea that as it scales up, it becomes more more widely distributed. I, I found another one in the 22 2022 catalog that I thought. It, it could fit that mold. Um, it was it was it was better technologies to to make um, vertical farming more efficient. And I picked out this one because I was thinking, you know, some of the things that are grown in vertical farms, in in the same vein and the same idea, could end up in your grocery store. Um, so, what was this this technology on vertical farming? So this is uh, decades of NASA research into figuring out how to grow plants in space um, with as a little footprint as possible, as little weight as possible. So just you're not running an, an umbilical cord up into space. You're also not, you know, shipping a you know terracotta pot full of soil and a watering can and a couple of tomato seeds. You know, you've got to find the most <laughs> most efficient way. You put it next to the window, right? With uh, uh, yeah. day day changing every ninety minutes. It's, it's, no plant's not going to put up with that. Um, so we developed ways to grow plants um, with with uh, lightweight growing medium, so even lighter than hydroponics or um, uh, uh, soil. 
we use a, a nutrient film on the roots. Um, and then we can dial the lights in just right, and we can uh, you know, scrub the ethylene from the air, and we can um, uh, put enough sensors in there that, that we can um, uh, check on the needs of the plant and see if it's experiencing stress and adjust the light accordingly and the, or the water accordingly um, or the nutrients accordingly so that um, you end up not needing pesticides, you end up not needing fertilizers. You're, you're doing it all naturally well, in the sense that um, you're adjusting the light um, uh, and, and the water and, and the, the nutrients. Um, so you've got this kind of super efficient growth chamber with a small weight and small footprint. So one of the things we started doing was at, at Kennedy Space Center was trying to see if we could you know, build walls of these things. So vertical farms of um, these ultra efficient vegetable gardens. And we did. And um, we published this information and you know, shared it broadly and freely with anyone who was interested. And now there's a couple companies that have you know, adopted the NASA, NASA methods and are um, producing crops. And the cool thing is, as the world gets denser and denser, um, and urban areas keep getting denser, um, one of the things that you don't have in uh, places packed full of people are big empty fields. <laughs> you know, they just don't go hand in hand. Right. Um, so, so finding ways to grow crops in dense urban areas, nutritious crops that don't, you know, aren't all covered in pesticides and fertilizers. Um, is a, a valuable thing to do. So there's a couple companies now um, uh, in urban areas around the country where these things are um, uh, uh, producing crops that you'll actually find in grocery stores. Like there's a, a company up in New York um, that's creating uh, lettuces that are now being sold to all the New York area Whole Foods. So you wouldn't even know it walking into the grocery store and you go, ah, that lettuce looks okay, and you buy it, you'll eat it. It's NASA lettuce grown in a, on a vertical <laughs> farm, never touched dirt. Amazing, amazing. I got I got one more, Dan, that I pulled out from from this uh, 2022. I mean, actually, I have a lot more, but um, I, I did want to pull out one that I thought was on this theme of having very, you know, very wide, very sweeping effects because I'm looking at my phone and I'm thinking about that camera. One that I saw in the 2022 catalog was improved battery testing and i thought that this was this was good because you know a lot of us remember that time where lithium ion batteries were, were catching on fire and so you know a lot of us started thinking about um safety uh safety and battery and i think this one this one i think is uh is a good one for for that wide sweeping applications of, of things like batteries yeah and this was a real simple story too in that uh, batteries used to catch on fire. <laughs> and, um, we, we, lithium-ion mm -hmm. batteries were, were powerful and fast charging and, and uh, much more advanced than um, uh, anything we'd had before, but they would light on fire sometimes. Um, and, uh, and NASA didn't want that. <laughs> so we definitely, you know, fire is very bad um, in a uh, space environment especially. So we started testing them and developed new protocols and um, uh, methods for testing lithium ion batteries that are now uh, industry standard uh, for ensuring that they aren't going to light on fire. Um, so now if you got a lithium ion battery and, and thankfully it's not bursting the flames right now, that's, that's a, a NASA yeah. research that's been shared widely with, with industry. Yeah, I, I love I'm, that. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about plants again. Um, and it's yeah. just, the plant growth experiment, this is um, its kind of an older one, but it, it takes a while for these technologies to become, and this one doesn't even seem like technology, knowledge to become ubiquitous. Um, and, you know, something like the cell phone camera, it took 20, 15, 20 years before all of a sudden we all had them everywhere. Um, but I'm thinking back to something that happened in the 1970s. There was a, uh, a researcher at a space center named Bill Wolverton, and um we were building this um, kind of uh, simulation of a space station. And it was a, essentially a, a mobile home um, that we fitted out to look and act like a space station. We would experiment with you know, uh, locations of things, living in it, um, just a, a simulator. And one of the things that people noticed when this thing first got built was you'd walk in, your eyes would sting, um, and it would... It is just kind of like a, like a funky chemical odor to it, and people get headaches and not want to be in there. 
Um, it's what we know now is thick building syndrome. Um, and if you ever walked into a new building, new construction, and they put you know the formaldehyde and the glue and the carpeting and that um, the paint is, is off-gassing um, uh, nasty chemicals, and you kind of walk into like a like new dense you know, sealed construction. These old houses breathe a little bit more, but this new new construction with all inorganic materials, off-gassing will, will give you headaches pretty fast. It's not good for you. Um, so we experienced that in the, in this um, called the biohome at Stennis that, that we built. And so Bill Wolverton said, you, you know what cleans the air? It's plants. And everyone said, Bill, that's, a, that's an old uh, fairy tale. Plants don't clean the air. Said, no, I think they do. I think they do. So he started experimenting um, with plants and just determined and established that plants do clean the air. So now you and I know, yeah, plants clean air, right? Common common knowledge. So that's a right, yeah. yeah, that, that was Bill Wolverton uh, out of Mississippi in the 1970s. Yes, it's true. So Bill tested it and validated it. Um, he also determined, kind of interestingly, that it's not the leaves that clean the air. It's actually the root system uh, that, that traps hmm. all the contaminants. So I thought that was a neat little aside. So the reason I, I bring this up is, one other kind of no fooling moment. Um, so Bill needed to get his hands on as many different plants as he could uh, in order to test them um, to see which one cleaned the air the best. So we reached out to this kind of newly formed um, industry group, group this um, uh, Consumer uh, House Plant Association, um, and said, can you all send me a bunch of plants? I'm going to test them. And they said, yeah, okay. They sent Bill a bunch of house plants, and he tested them, and he tested hundreds of different plants and came up with, you know, 10, 15 that, that did the best job of cleaning the air. And um, they were things like uh, the pothos, uh, the snake plant, um, Norfolk pine, um, philodendron, rhododendron, um, all of these plant names that you've heard of because after Bill's research – into which plants clean the air the best, the House Plant Society started promoting it and saying these are the plants that clean the air the best, and those are the ones that got propagated, grown, and sold in the country for the past 40, 50 years. So the reason you go when you go to the store and you pick up a house plant and it's a pothos or rhododendron or philodendron or uh, an English ivy or a Norfolk pine or one of, one of these common house plants. Um, it's because the NASA research showed 50 years ago that those are among the best to clean in the air. Oh, that is wild. That's why <laughs> we have the houseplants that, that we have. <laughs> Isn't that weird? So, okay, so, <laughs> the other thing, so uh, my wife gets so sick of this. We'll be walking along down, down the street, and I'll point at something and say, you know about that? She goes, is it NASA? And I, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I say no, but it, but it is. It, it always is. Uh, there's so much NASA everywhere you look. <laughs> and that's. I, I think that's a. That's that's a. I'll end with a question like that. Dan is. Um, that that uh, that seems so important. Me and you are laughing. It's just it, because it's just um, it's surprising. It, it's it's um, it, we're we're in awe. We're we're in awe about uh, thinking about just how how fascinating this is, but. Ending on on reflecting on just how how this how this uh, how NASA research is important and this tech transfer uh, capability to bring it into our own lives is important. You probably better than anyone have seen the benefits of of exploring the cosmos and how that that transfer happens to to our to our daily lives. Um, from from your perspective, why why is exploration? Um, so so important, and 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 what are when you when you go out and tell people what are the benefits? What are some of the things that that you leave people with? So I again I I think that it's important to emphasize that you know tech transfer and spinoff um, and these uh, advances in our everyday life that they're gravy. Um, they're nice additions to get as a result of this work that we're doing. Um, and they're cool, and they're everywhere, and they make us safer. Um, they save lives. We've got you know, implantable heart devices, the ventilators, um, 
defibrillator uh, components. I mean, you name it. Um, that also helps the economy, you know, creates jobs and increases revenue and um, increases uh, domestic manufacturing. There's, there's a lot that goes into this, but ultimately, um, it's all about being human and the kind of core need of humans to know what's beyond that next hill. Um, and for us, mm-hmm. that's space. And I, I think it's just cool that humans are always explorers. And I, and I, I think it's a kind of intrinsic to who we are as a species. And it's neat that we get cool stuff like uh, cell phone cameras as a result of that. Amazing, amazing. Dan Lockney, thank you so much for coming on. He used to have a podcast, sharing some of these incredible stories, incredible technologies. Very much appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having me. This was fun. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you learned something today and got excited about a lot of the cool technologies that are coming out of technology transfer. Check out uh, spinoff.nasa.gov to uh, check out their latest ma- magazine, um, Spinoff 2022. You can also check their database for any story of any in- um any kind of technology that may be of interest to you. And, if, of course, if you're in the industry of actually wanting to use some of these technologies, uh, like Daniel said, they can walk you through the process uh, at that website. We've talked about technology transfer before on this podcast, and you can check out episode 135 on our list of episodes. And, of course, you can check out any of our episodes in no particular order at nasa.gov slash podcast. There's also a couple of other shows there that you can check out at your convenience as well. If you want to talk to us, Houston, we have a podcast. We are on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea or ask a question, and just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston, we have a podcast. This episode was recorded on March 11th, 2022. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, and Greg Wiseman for their role in making this podcast possible and to Nicole Rose uh, and the Space Station Program Research Office for coordinating the topic items. And of course, thanks again to Dan Lockney for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.